House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is flying back to San Francisco to be with her husband, who was attacked by a man with a hammer at their home. Paul Pelosi has been in surgery today for injuries. He's expected to make a full recovery. The investigation is ongoing. It's Friday, October 28th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. The latest on that story coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Tesla CEO Elon Musk makes some big moves on his first day as the head of Twitter. A new California law protects families seeking medical care for young people who are transgender. We are going to provide them with refuge, and our law enforcement is not going to enforce the laws of Texas and Alabama criminalizing these families. Also ahead, why the masterwork by a famous Dutch painter has been hanging upside down for decades. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband is in the hospital after he was attacked by an intruder in the couple's home this morning in San Francisco. 82-year-old Paul Pelosi suffered blunt force injuries to his head and body. At a very brief news conference this afternoon, police did not say how the intruder broke in, but according to a source briefed on the attack, it's apparent that he was looking for Nancy Pelosi, a detail that's raising new concerns about political violence in the lead-up to midterm elections. Scott Schaefer of member station KQED is following the story. The intruder yelled, where is Nancy, where is Nancy, before attacking Paul Pelosi with a hammer he pulled away from him. The speaker was in Washington at the time. San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott identified the suspect as 42-year-old David DePepe of Berkeley. Mr. DePepe will be booked at the San Francisco County Jail on the following charges, attempted homicide, assault with a deadly weapon, elder abuse, burglary, and several other additional felonies. The Pelosi home in the upscale Pacific Heights neighborhood has been targeted before. Someone left a pig's head out front. It was also spray-painted with graffiti all before the January 6th insurrection. For NPR News, I'm Scott Schaefer in San Francisco. As the new owner of Twitter, Elon Musk says the company will form a content moderation council with widely diverse viewpoints. Musk is under scrutiny over whether his pledge to open up the social media platform to voices of all kinds will also enable the proliferation of hate speech and misinformation. NPR's Bobby Allen has more. Twitter has had a trust and safety team that has worked tirelessly, I think, to ensure that the platform is a safe place, as safe as they can make it to keep the really horrendous stuff off of the platform, right? To draw bright red lines that say, you know what? If you're going to use this as a megaphone to amplify, like, pseudoscience about vaccine safety, we are going to ban you. Will Musk reset all of that? Perhaps. But if he goes too far, he's going to see advertisers flee in droves. And at the end of the day, advertising is how Twitter butters its bread. Bobby Allen reporting. The Ukrainian Air Force says it has shot down more than 300 self-destructing drones over the course of Russia's invasion. More from NPR's Nathan Rott. The self-destructing Shahed drone has become a favorite weapon of Russia's in the last few weeks. Swarms of them have been launched at energy infrastructure in cities around the country, including the capital, Kiev. And although Ukraine has been successful at shooting down many of the slow-moving drones, others have gotten through, damaging infrastructure and killing civilians. The U.S. and Ukraine has accused Iran of supplying the explosive autonomous drones to Russia, a claim that Iran denies. Western intelligence agencies have warned that Russia could be running low on long-range high-precision missiles, a shortage that could explain the recent uptick in drone strikes. It's NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Police and the Boston School Department are trying to figure out how a seven-year-old child managed to bring a loaded gun to a Dorchester school yesterday. Police confiscated the weapon. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is pledging to hold accountable the person who allowed the child to access the gun. The incident follows the shooting deaths of four people since the weekend. The Reverend Kevin Peterson with the New Democracy Coalition says distrust of law enforcement is a problem and more community policing is needed. If we had a police unit walking the street down the Washington Street corridor where a young man was murdered this week, perhaps that would not have happened by having a presence there on that corridor, which is considered one of the most dangerous in the city of Boston. Boston police are appealing to the public for help in solving the recent crimes. The Travis Roy Foundation made its final gift today before shutting down. More than $4 million will go to Spalding Rehab Hospital in Boston and the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. Travis Roy was paralyzed just seconds into his first game on the Boston University hockey team. Tomorrow is the second anniversary of his death at the age of 45. The city of Salem is expected to be jammed this weekend, just before Halloween. All this month, record-breaking crowds have descended on the Witch City for its haunted happening celebration. Salem Police Chief Lucas Miller says the city is giving everyone a warm welcome. Despite all the visitors we have and and the congestion, it's a family affair and people are coming here to have a good time. and, And I would say the vast majority of them do have a good time. Miller says if you don't have reservations, then you should wait until later in November to go to Salem because everything is booked through Halloween Day Monday. We should have some clouds around tonight. Temperatures all the way down to the mid 30s. So be careful with any tender plants out there. Uh, Then we're in for a beautiful weekend. Sunshine in a big way tomorrow and Sunday, too. Not too chilly. Highs about 60 tomorrow, just topping that on Sunday. 52 degrees now in Boston at 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, was violently attacked in a break-in at their San Francisco home overnight. The intruder is in custody, and Mr. Pelosi is being treated at the hospital. San Francisco Police Chief William Scott described what happened when officers arrived at their home around 2.30 a.m. Our officers observed Mr. Pelosi and the suspect both holding a hammer. The suspect pulled the hammer away from Mr. Pelosi and violently assaulted him with it. Our officers immediately tackled the suspect, disarmed him, took him into custody, requested emergency backup, and rendered medical aid. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now with the latest. Deirdre, what more can you tell us about what happened? Well, we first learned about this attack earlier this morning from Pelosi spokesman Drew Hamill. He put out a statement that there was this attack and an, uh, by an intruder against Paul Pelosi, who's 82 years old. San Francisco police say they were called to the house for a wellness check around 2.27 a.m. It's unclear who made that call. 
The man now in custody is 42-year-old David DePepe. According to a source briefed on the investigation, DePepe was specifically looking for the speaker and tells me that he confronted Paul Pelosi and asked, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? San Francisco Police Chief William Scott, who we heard from earlier, said DePepe is being charged with multiple crimes. Here's more from him. The motive for this attack is still being determined. Mr. DePepe will be booked at the San Francisco County Jail on the following charges. Attempted homicide, assault with a deadly weapon, elder abuse, burglary, and several several other additional felonies. Mr. Pelosi was taken to the hospital, and Hamill, the spokesman, says he's expected to make a full recovery. And what do we know about the background of the suspect here? As we heard from the chief, they're still investigating the motive. They often look to social media postings in these types of cases. NPR has reviewed social media accounts from a man with the same name as DePape, and they include anti-Semitic tropes and also false claims about the 2020 election and the COVID vaccine. But right now, we just don't have much official information from law enforcement about any specific links to Pelosi. Doesn't the Speaker of the House typically have security dedicated to themselves as well as their family? Right. You know this, Juana. You saw this on the Mm -hmm. Hill. All the top leaders from both parties have security details assigned by the Capitol Police. The Speaker was in Washington with her security team when the attack happened. And so her detail was with her, not at her home in San Francisco. Her spokesman said she's grateful to the first responders and requests privacy. And we do know that the FBI, the U.S. Capitol Police and San Francisco Police have announced a joint threat threat investigation. So we're waiting to hear more from them. What more do we know about threats against leaders and members of Congress just more generally? They've really gone up dramatically in recent years against lawmakers from both parties. Five years ago, the U.S. Capitol Police recorded a little less than 4,000 threats that year. Just one year ago, 2021, the last full year where we have statistics, there were close to 10,000. Last year, the U.S. Capitol Police opened up two field offices, one in Florida and one in California, because of heightened threats against lawmakers. And this year, money was added to lawmakers' budgets to allow them to upgrade security at their houses and their offices. We've seen attacks against other members. Uh, New York Republican Lee Zeldin, who's running for governor in New York, was recently attacked by a man wielding a knife. We know there was an attack on the Republicans practicing for a baseball team, including the number two House Republican Steve Scalise in 2017. You know, lawmakers are pretty shaken up today and uh, both expressing uh, sympathy for Mr. Pelosi. That's NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thank you for your reporting on this. Thank you. About half a billion people all around the world depend on ecosystems created by corals. Those plant-like marine animals that cover ocean floors are critical to fishing and tourism industries. And also... Coral reefs are the best living barrier against the destructive power of storms. So coastal communities in in developing countries depend on coral reefs for their survival, their livelihoods, and their food security. That is marine ecologist Enrique Sala, who recently talked me through a deep-sea mystery and miracle. It started in 2009. He led an expedition with National Geographic to a nearly untouched corner of the South Pacific. We wanted to get into a time machine, go back hundreds of years and actually see a coral reef like they used to be everywhere before we started exploiting them and polluting them and killing them all over the world. 
His team wanted to see if the vibrant reefs there held any clues that could help them understand how to bring damaged reefs in other parts of the ocean back to health. And as soon as our bubbles cleared, the bottom was covered by a thriving coral. It was like crystal clear, blue, turquoise water, schools of silver jacks, and then the corals, pastels, oranges and beiges. It was so beautiful. It was like an impressionist painting. Sala's team presented their findings to officials in the island country of Kiribati, also known as Kiribati. The Kiribati government took steps to protect the waters from fishing and other human activity. But between 2015 and 2016, record levels of ocean warming decimated half the coral reefs that Sala's team had been studying. We thought that all hope was lost, that even the most pristine coral reefs in the world were going to be destroyed with the warming that is increasingly more, more frequent. But they continued their study and last year set out for another dive. Sala told me he was dreading what he might find. While my buddies were getting their scuba tanks in, I just jumped in the water. And my uh, two divers... Uh, <laughs> no gear. With just my wetsuit. And I jumped in the water. And I looked down, and my first thought is, did anything ever happen to this reef? Sala and his team were ecstatic to see the reef restored. They recorded their reactions during that expedition. <laughs> it was incredible. Well, the reef rose fast here. <laughs> Why were things able to turn around so dramatically in just a few short years? We believe because of two reasons. One, half of the corals didn't die. So there were enough corals there to help to replenish the space that was left by the corals that died. And the second main reason is because the place is fully protected and it has an abundance of fish that is off the charts. So they were eating all the algae that would smother the dead coral skeletons and make it impossible for the corals to come back, which is what happens in other places like the Caribbean, for example, where the big fish are gone. Right. So by officially protecting the coral reef, it allowed all these fish to survive and they helped resuscitate the reef. Exactly. It is the protection that yields resilience. But the fish have to have these huge abundances that can only be achieved in an area that is either fully protected or that has never been fished. And there are very few of these left. But let me ask you, is this official protection of a coral reef scalable? Because realistically, no government is going to totally stop fishing, totally stop commercial activity. I mean, there are entire economies that rely on ocean industries. So how do you suggest striking a balance between protecting parts of the ocean and protecting people's livelihoods? Well, the funny thing is that today there is no balance that overfishing dominates the ocean because today less than 3% of the ocean is fully protected from fishing. We also know these highly protected areas, the fish grow so much that many of those fish spill over the boundaries of these protected areas and help to replenish the surrounding fishing grounds. And we have seen in many places around the world that the fishermen are catching more fish around these protected areas than before. And also, the more marine life that is in the ocean, the higher the ability of the ocean to capture and store carbon pollution and help to mitigate climate change. So if countries want a future for their fisheries, they need to manage their fisheries in a more responsible way around areas that are set aside to help regenerate the rest of the ocean.
Do you believe that the coral reef rebirth that you saw in Kiribati can actually convince other governments to protect their oceans the way you describe? I hope that what we saw in Kiribati is going to be a beacon of hope because all the news that we get about coral reefs are bad news, bleaching, death. We're going to lose 90% of the corals, even if we achieve the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. So in this sea of bad news, it's great to have an island of hope. It's great to show that protection of biodiversity, protection of marine life, can actually provide resilience to global warming. Enrique Sala, founder of National Geographic's Pristine Seas Project. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, Juana, are you a fan of abstract art? I mean, it's nice, but I got to be honest, I sometimes find it disorienting. Like, what am I actually looking at here? I know. I feel like everyone pretends to find something profound in it, but a lot of people, even so-called experts, find it disorienting. What do you mean? Well, it turns out an artwork by Piet Mondrian has been displayed upside down for more than 75 years. Okay, I'm an amateur, so that is something I would do, but how did that happen? (laughs) Well, you can't totally blame them. You see, like, the artwork is a bunch of perpendicular strips of adhesive of tape in red, blue, and yellow. It's like a colorful grid. So that doesn't sound like it has an obvious top or bottom to right. it. So how did they figure out that the top was the bottom? Well, Zuzane Mayabuza noticed the mistake. She's an art curator in Dusseldorf, Germany. And she talked to Reuters about the work. She says that based on the way these colorful strips of tape were applied to the canvas, Mondrian must have worked on this the other way around. And therefore, the the art is actually hanging upside down. Es hängt hier verkehrt down. Wow, that is some incredible detective work. So I know. Are they going to flip it around? Well, actually, no, because the curator says gravity could actually damage these delicate tape strips. All right, well, I guess we're just all going to have to flip ourselves over and do handstands in front of this painting to check it out. <laughs> This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, a preview of the upcoming National Women's Soccer League Championship and later day one for Elon Musk as the top dog at Twitter. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by German International School Boston, a bilingual, globally-minded education, preschool to grade 12. Sign up for open house events at gisbos.org. And the Huntington Theater. Celebrate the grand reopening of the Huntington Theater and the legacy of August Wilson with Joe Turner's Come and Gone, now through November 13th. A big end to the week on Wall Street today. The Dow notched its fourth straight week of gains as it rose more than 2.5% to 829 points. It finished at 32,862. S&P gained just under 2.5% to end the day at 3901. The Nasdaq jumped almost 3% to end the session at 11,102. Details coming up on Marketplace. It starts at 6.30. It's now 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Fairbank & Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com.
I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. For the rest of the day today, sun and streaks of clouds, a good breeze, making it feel even chillier than it is now. Tonight, generally cloudy and all the way down to the mid-30s overnight. Tomorrow and Sunday should be a lot alike. Sunny skies both days, light winds. High temperatures about 60 tomorrow, a few degrees higher on Sunday. 52 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity, with Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients save, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. A new California law protects families who travel to this state seeking medical care for transgender youth. It's a response to growing efforts in red states against trans rights. Leslie McClurg from member station KQED has more. After decades of building a life in Texas, a mother suddenly worried she might be investigated for child abuse. We were stunned that it was no longer safe for us to be there. She requested we not use her name because earlier this year, Texas Governor Greg Abbott ordered Family Protective Services to investigate parents with transgender kids. The mother started hearing stories about children who were pulled out of classrooms and interrogated. With their parents not being there, and these are children that have only socially transitioned. All they asked for was to be called a different pronoun. That's terrifying. Her own 12-year-old daughter socially transitioned three years ago when she asked her family and friends to use feminine pronouns. And so we sat down and talked to our kid. We gave her a little card to go to school with that listed her rights and told her what to do if somebody came to investigate us. But the family could not relax. They sold their home, and this fall they packed up all their belongings and moved to Southern California. It feels very good to not feel like you're in danger you know, on that really critical place of, like, our family being ripped apart. They feel safe under a new law authored by State Senator Scott Weiner. It ensures families can access hormones or puberty blockers in California, and it shields families from investigations in other states. We are going to provide them with refuge, and we're not going to send them back, and we're not going to honor subpoenas, and our law enforcement is not going to enforce uh, the laws of Texas and Alabama criminalizing these families. Leaders in 21 states are pushing laws that would restrict medical care for transgender youth. Many of these efforts are tied up in court. Nevertheless, families are panicking because kids who are already on hormones or puberty blockers may lose access to their medication. We want these treatments to not be happening on minors because they're permanent. Greg Burt is with the conservative Christian California Family Council. He worries kids will regret transitioning. We do not assume that your body is the problem. We think it's much more logical to encourage young people to try and get their minds to match their bodies. Yet the standard of care for kids who are really distressed and diagnosed with gender dysphoria does include medical interventions. 
But it's not just the content of the new California law that Burt opposes. He also argues that it violates the Constitution. There could be litigation, both with respect to abortion and with respect to gender-affirming care. Jessica Levinson is a professor at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. But I think the weight of the law indicates that states are separate sovereigns if and until there is a national standard that indicates nobody can obtain gender-affirming care or nobody can obtain an abortion, the law allows for that patchwork. That patchwork is crucial to Kathy Molig's work. She is the executive director of Trans Family Support Services in San Diego. The politicians should not be making medical decisions for anybody, nor should they be making parental decisions for anybody. A survey from the Trevor Project, a suicide prevention organization, found that 45% of transgender youth have considered killing themselves in the last year. About a decade ago, Molig helped her 11-year-old access puberty blockers. My son would not still be alive if we waited to 18. He already was in so much distress and so completely miserable. His body was becoming something that he knew he was not. Today, she says her son is thriving in college, studying theology. Yet there's little to no data on whether youth who transition regret that decision later. For the Molig family, their only regret is waiting as long as they did. For NPR News, I'm Leslie McClurg. The Kansas City Current finished in last place last year in the National Women's Soccer League. And on Saturday, they play for this year's title. They face Portland Thorns FC, who can now call 22-year-old forward Sophia Smith this year's MVP. And amid a lot of turmoil in U.S. women's soccer this year, notably for Portland, they go in as favorites. Meg Linehan is a reporter at The Athletic and joins us from Media Day. Hi, Meg. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So start off by telling us about Portland. What is key for them in this matchup? Portland has been so, so good at scoring goals all year long. And to your point, Sophia Smith, the league's newest MVP, she's really key to that. And yesterday she talked about just being soap, right? And and being allowed to try things. And I think that's going to be really, really important for Portland is if they can unlock Sophia Smith, then Portland has a pretty good shot at lifting their third NWSL championship trophy. And what about Kansas City? How can they possibly get past a team like Portland? I mean, Kansas City is so interesting because even when they don't have the ball, they can really disrupt teams. So we've seen them have these really strong starts. If they can get on the board early, if they can overcome maybe some of the nerves, then I think this is such an even matchup. I think we're just going to be in the action from minute one of this game tomorrow. It has also been a complicated year for the league off the field. An independent investigation into the scandals from last year, like one you reported on, of harassment and sexual coercion against Paul Riley, who was coaching the Thorns at the time, found systemic problems across the sport. There was also the recent equal pay agreement. What has the last year meant for the league and for these two teams? complicated is really the right word. I think we're all trying to hold both all of the work that that everybody knows has to be done to make the league better and to make the league prioritize player health and safety first and foremost, while also knowing that sponsorship is up, viewership is up, that attendance is up. We've had four consecutive records set in the playoffs 
for attendance. And then we're going to have what is likely a sellout crowd here at Audi Field in Washington, D.C. So there is a lot of good and bad. But I think really at the heart of this is that there is a moment here of change, which is going to be painful for the NWSL, but that ultimately the league that emerges from the year that we've had is going to be a better one that prioritizes players at the very center of everything that it's trying to do. Hearing you describe that, the potential for a sellout crowd tomorrow, all, all of the people who are watching this game, that sounds like a pretty healthy forecast for the women's game in the U.S. moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the next big challenge point is to not just have it be a championship game, right, where we're getting a sellout crowd, is to make it consistent week in, week out across all of the markets of the league. But it feels like this is what the game could be all of the time. Before I let you go, Meg, I have to ask, who do you like for the win tomorrow night? You know, it's I, I don't I don't know if I want to put my opinion on the record because I know <laughs> players on, on both teams, but you know, I, I think Kansas City really has has gone through it, right? Coming from last place last year, I think that there is this sense of joy that permeates the club in a way that is so new and amazing to see. So I do think that they have maybe that intangible edge for tomorrow. Meg Linehan, reporter at The Athletic. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, if Maura Healy wins the governorship in Massachusetts, what might she do about the continuing rise in the cost of health care? That story's coming up in the next half hour. Celtics have got the garden tonight as they face the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cavs have got a three-game winning streak going, 7.40 start time tonight. Meanwhile, the Bruins are also playing an Ohio team. They visit the Columbus Blue Jackets for a 7.05 game. The Bees are near the top of the Atlantic Division. Blue Jackets are in the cellar of the Metropolitan Division. In the forecast, cold overnight tonight, down around 37 degrees, cloudy skies. For tomorrow, sunshine, about 60 for a high. Then Sunday, same thing, sunny skies, about 63. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. And Global Arts Live, presenting flamenco superstar Ferraquito at the Berkeley Performance Center, one night only, November 2nd. Tickets at globalartslive.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Josh Gondelman was not impressed with the new law allowing people to get hearing aids over the counter. In California, you could get recreational hearing aids for like the last five or six years. I'm Peter Sagal. Join us as we ask comedian Hassan Minaj about what he's been hearing lately. It's the News Quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden is heading back to the key swing state of Pennsylvania tonight in the final run-up to the midterm elections. As NPR's Windsor Johnston tells us, Biden is trying to drum up support for Democrats who are locked in tight races with Republicans. President Biden will deliver the keynote speech at a fundraiser hosted by the state's Democratic Party. He's also expected to offer some last-minute support for Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who's trying to flip the state's open Senate seat, which has been held by a Republican for more than 10 years. The outcome of the Pennsylvania Senate race could determine whether Democrats retain control of the chamber. 
NPR's Windsor Johnston, Biden easily won over Trump in 2020 in Philadelphia and its four suburban counties, but his approval ratings in Pennsylvania are sagging with just 11 days to go before voters cast their final ballots in the midterms. A U.N. agency report claims gang violence has uprooted tens of thousands of Haitians. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has more on that report. The International Organization for Migration says 96,000 people have fled their homes in Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince, as gangs block fuel depots and humanitarian aid routes. The IOM says gangs have been involved in kidnappings, racketeering, and other crimes in Haiti. All this comes as Haiti has seen a sharp rise in cholera cases. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, on a trip to Canada, has been discussing the possibility of an international intervention for Haiti. He calls it a work in progress. The U.S. and Canada have delivered some armored vehicles to Haiti's national police in hopes that will help local authorities regain some control in the capital. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Stocks finished sharply higher on Wall Street today. The Dow up more than two and a half percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. The state says an influx of migrants to Massachusetts is overwhelming its temporary shelter system. Housing and Economic Development Secretary Mike Keneally says the emergency promoted the placement, uh, prompted the placement of hundreds of unsheltered people in hotels in Methuen and Kingston. Local leaders complained they were not notified. In a statement released today, Keneally said that state law requires Massachusetts to provide shelter to any family that needs help. Boston community leaders say they're meeting to talk about how to combat violence in Boston without the city's help. Four people have been shot and killed in the city since last weekend. State Representative Liz Miranda grew up in Roxbury. She says Massachusetts is a national leader in gun violence prevention, but right now it doesn't feel that way. I know that gun deaths and shootings have been down and and we have very strict gun laws. But when you live in a community like Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan, uh, that doesn't matter when you lose your children, when you lose your siblings. Community leaders say the lingering effects of the pandemic are one cause of the violence. Regular train service on the MBTA's Green Line D branch will resume ahead of schedule beginning tomorrow morning. Trains had not been set to run again until Monday after a planned week-long shutdown. The T says it has wrapped up construction of the line for the rest of the year. Next year, the final construction phase will get underway to replace track and to make other improvements. And the 14th annual Boston Book Festival takes place this weekend in Copley Square. The event includes a street fair, live music, and talks with authors of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Festival director Deborah Porter says it's a great way to celebrate. The beauty of the book festival is it brings readers together. It's the convening from the very first year. That's what I noticed made it special is that people felt an excitement about being with other other people who feel the same way they do. All the festival events are free and no pre-registration is required. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Clark, New England's Sub-Zero and Wolf showroom and test kitchen, where you can cook on Wolf appliances to make informed selections. More at ClarkLiving.com. Should have some clouds around tonight. Temperatures all the way down to the mid-30s. So watch out for any tender outdoor plants. And then a really nice weekend ahead. Sunshine tomorrow and Sunday. Not too chilly. Highs about 60 tomorrow. Just topping that on Sunday.
52 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Well, it is the first full day with Elon Musk as the head of Twitter. It's a big deal for politicians, the media, and all sorts of people who use Twitter to get their messages out and to learn information. NPR's Raquel Maria Dillon has been keeping tabs on the famously unpredictable CEO's first moves at the tech company. She joins us now. Welcome. Hello. Hey. Okay. so what has Musk been doing already now that he's in charge at Twitter? Today, he announced via tweet, of course, that there will be (laughs) a content moderation council with widely diverse viewpoints. He promised no major content decisions or account reinstatements before this new council meets. Keep in mind, there is a fundamental tension here for Musk. He has to both reassure advertisers that Twitter will still be a place where they can feel comfortable putting their products and logos, and at the same time, he wants to run Twitter as a free speech platform with all that entails. He's moved quickly to sweep out the top executives, some of whom he criticized publicly before, the CEO, the CFO, the top lawyer, and importantly, the public policy chief who was responsible for deciding which accounts got suspended if they ran afoul of Twitter policies. Right. A whole bunch of people said goodbye. Okay, so Raquel, what do you think we should make of these moves? I spoke with Paul Barrett from New York University's Center for Business and Human Rights. He says if Musk appoints qualified experts to this content council, no matter what side of the political spectrum they're on, they won't open the doors to any and all kind of speech. Content rules are necessary, Barrett says. If you remove those filters, I think you'll see uh, something of a cesspool. And that may please some people. (laughs) who want to splash around in a cesspool. And I think it will cause others to back away. And if a lot of users back away, then the site becomes much less viable as a business. Twitter needs advertisers because that's how the company makes money. Ads were 90% of Twitter's revenue last year. Okay, so I know it's still early, but what does all of this look like for users so far? Like, can they actually see any of these changes we're talking about while they're on Twitter right now? There's this curious case that says a lot about Elon Musk's management style and Uh maybe what's going to happen with Twitter. It's an account called Cat Turd 2. Yesterday, this person claimed Twitter was somehow limiting the reach of the account and nothing had changed with Musk in charge. This user has 800,000 followers and a podcast. And Musk is really active on Twitter, engages with his fans and foes alike. So early this morning, Musk replied personally to Cat Turd 2 to say he would dig into it. This is not sustainable, though, for the owner of the company (laughs) to be handling help tickets, especially this particular boss. He already owns two other major companies, Tesla, SpaceX. 
Musk has not yet named a new CEO or leadership team for Twitter. So what are you hearing from from people about like how they feel about the Musk takeover of Twitter at this point? It depends on your perspective. For some, there is a feeling of desperation with people wondering what's next, mourning their online communities, reminiscing about funny tweet threads or memes from back in the day. Others, uh, there is a tone of celebration about an end to what they call censorship on the platform. Take former President Donald Trump, whose account was suspended after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Twitter said he broke its rules against inciting violence. Uh, Trump said uh, on his own social media platform, Truth Social, that he's happy to see Musk in charge. Last night, Musk tweeted, the bird is free. A commissioner with the European Union. Leave it there. That is NPR's Raquel Maria Dillon in San Francisco. Thank you. The hottest investment right now is government bonds. They have gotten so popular that would-be buyers crashed the U.S. Treasury's website this week. NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith went to see what all the fuss was about. For weeks, there has been news that government bonds are this super trendy investment. My colleague Andrea Shu and I wanted to see what was going on for ourselves. I still have not been able to bring up the website, just the error message with the little frowny face. The bonds that are breaking the internet are Series I savings bonds, but they required like a year commitment. Andrea and I started smaller, cheapest bond out there, a four-week bond. We would each put in 50 bucks of our own money. The place to buy them, treasurydirect.gov. I am now trying to open an account and it's thinking the site can't be reached. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little worried. David Enna covers bonds for tipswatch.com. He says this is not normal. Treasury Direct is locking up because everybody's trying to buy bonds at the last minute. Um, Is that right? Is this because everybody's buying treasuries? It is. It's Yeah, they become very hot. Very hot. Words that have literally never been used to describe U.S. government bonds. A bond is essentially a loan. You lend the government, say, 100 bucks, and after four weeks or six months or 10 years, depending on which bond you buy, the government will pay you back, plus a little interest. U.S. government bonds are considered to be one of the safest investments in the world. Basically, zero risk. And basically, zero reward up until recently. Alexis Leondis is a columnist for Bloomberg. I mean, I think boring would be a totally accurate word. Um, <laughs> and, and really, like, from for most, not really worth a look because rates were so incredibly low, like less than 1% kind of low. Back in January, if Andrea and I spent 100 bucks on a four-week government bond, we would have gotten a payout of about $0.05. Cents. Today, though, for our $100, we will make almost $4. That's nearly 80 times the profit. Government bonds are giving investors the best payout seen in years. 4%, 5%, definitely better than the stock market right now. Although still not enough to keep up with inflation. Which brings us to the thing breaking the internet, the I-bond. These are adjusted for inflation, and they're paying out an interest rate of more than 9.6%. After today, that payout is expected to go down, hence the crashing website. Luckily, though, persistence pays off. At 6 p.m., after seven hours of trying, Andrea and I got to the purchase page. Here we are. It's the site. <gasps> I know. You got in. Let's do it. Okay. Submit. Here we go. Wait. No. Oh, no. oh my God. No. 
it crashed again. And maybe that's not so surprising. Pretty much all government bonds are seeing a big spike in interest from investors because they are paying out 10, 20, 100 times more than they normally would, says David Enna. This might be a really big question. Why have rates gone up so much? The Fed. The Federal Reserve was buying billions of dollars worth of government bonds every week as part of COVID stimulus to keep money flowing through the economy. But it has largely stopped doing that. With that demand gone and big buyers like China and Europe backing off, the U.S. is having to offer the highest bond payouts in decades, which has created kind of this golden moment. People can make a decent return on an investment that doesn't really involve risk, which means newfound hotness for bonds and a crashing Treasury Direct website. Andrea and I tried dozens of times all day. That night, spirits were low. Around and around and around. Still thinking. I'm not that hopeful anymore. It's crashed again. Finally, 10 p.m., we got our bond. And apparently we were lucky. The Treasury released a statement that its website just couldn't accommodate all the demand. Bonds are just too hot right now. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The next governor of Massachusetts will have to grapple with the ever-rising cost of health care. The COVID pandemic is lingering, inflation is driving up costs, and staffing shortages are threatening access to care. Polls show that the Democrat in the race, Maura Healey, has a lead over Republican Jeff Deal. WBUR's Priyanka Dale-McCluskey looks at how Healey's work as state attorney general could shape her approach to health care if she becomes governor. Healy says as governor, she'd push for stronger oversight of the healthcare industry. And she touts her experience negotiating hospital mergers and suing companies that rebuff consumers. I've spent a lot of time on healthcare um, over the last eight years. And certainly there are any number of challenges. One is affordability. We don't have accessibility if we don't have affordable health care. Healy targeted health care costs from her first days as attorney general. She helped to slow the expansion of the state's biggest hospital system, Mass General Brigham. And she required the Beth Israel and Leahy hospitals to cap prices in order to merge. She also got the state's biggest insurers to remove barriers to mental health treatment. Healy made a recent campaign stop at UMass Boston, where she watched nursing students practice reviving a patient, in this case, a mannequin. Healy says as governor, she would invest in training programs like this to help hospitals that are scrambling to find enough workers. And she told reporters at the event her administration would tackle health disparities and invest in mental health care. We need to do the, the work as a state to increase those resources to get more people into these fields uh, and more people who can be out there helping residents across the state. But it's, it's an incredibly important issue. Healy's Republican opponent, Jeff Deal, agrees Massachusetts needs to expand mental health treatment and grow the health care workforce. But Deal puts vaccination mandates at the center of his campaign. He says he opposes them and would hire back any state workers who lost their jobs for failing to get a COVID vaccine. Here he is in the last debate. They need. You should get health care freedom. You should have the choice with your lives to get the health care that you decide, not government forcing it on you. And Deal also favors giving people more choice when it comes to insurance plans and hospitals. He took this swipe at Healy's health care record. But again, when you have a 
hospital mergers that have been approved by your office that have created less competition, of course healthcare is going to go up. That's a huge problem for Massachusetts. We need more competition in the healthcare marketplace. Unfortunately, you've taken action that actually makes that more expensive. Healy rejects that charge, but the next governor will face challenges when it comes to health care. The state's top job comes with tough responsibilities, for example, running the state Medicaid program and shaping policy through legislation. And there may be more pressure to play it safe. Healthcare is a powerful industry in Massachusetts. It accounts for a lot of campaign donations to candidates, says John McDonough, a professor at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, who has donated to Healy's campaign. So it makes them somewhat cautious in terms of going out on a ledge and sort of picking fights. Healy often praises the outgoing Republican governor, Charlie Baker, and hints that she'd follow his lead on health care. McDonough says that's a likely scenario. I don't have any sign or indication that I can point to that the attorney general would deviate substantially from even the Baker administration. Healy won the Democratic primary without a challenge. She isn't offering a lot of detail about how she would tackle some big issues, including the cost of health care. But she's asking voters to trust her record. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. This is WBUR in Boston. In the forecast, a chilly breeze out there right now, a beautiful evening, in fact. And overnight tonight should be downright cold, about 37 degrees with cloudy skies. Weekends looking mighty fine. Sunshine tomorrow up around 60 for a high. Then on Sunday, pretty much the same thing. Sunny skies could be a little bit warmer, about 63 degrees. We could see some clouds return for Monday. This note, if you're a really early riser, early October mornings just before dawn, you should get to see the brightest star in the sky, Sirius. It's low in the sky and it's got a slight pulse to it. It can even have some flashing colors. This is WBUR. It's 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts. Passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen on the WBR mobile app while you're out working or walking or heading to the door and going outside. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. And Worcester Academy, a co-ed day and boarding school, grades 6 to 12 and postgraduate. Open house November 6th. Your future starts here, worcesteracademy.org. Inflation has hit touring musicians too, you know. Live shows is kind of the biggest thing, and um, it concerns me that it's so expensive to play a live show at the moment. I'm Kai Rizdal, the new reality for going on the road. Next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. 
If you don't know the name Michael Imperioli, you might know the name Christopher Maltesanti, as in hot-headed protege of T, mob boss Tony Soprano. You're going to take this family into the 21st century. We're already in the 21st century, though, T. Whatever you say, T, I'd follow you into the gates of hell. The Sopranos has been off the air for 15 years, but Rolling Stone just called it the best TV show of all time, and Christopher remains a beloved pop culture icon. Michael Imperioli is the actor behind that character, and now he is back in the spotlight with a new lead role in HBO's The White Lotus. NPR's Erica Ryan has more. The Sopranos creator, David Chase, has his theories about why Christopher Moltisanti has stayed a fan favorite. I think it has something to do with the fact that He knows that somebody's trying to sucker him, exploit him. He may have to do it, but he has a really good bull sensor. Chris, you know me. What could you possibly do to me that I haven't already been through? I'm positive we'll think of something. And Michael Imperioli played a convincing mobster on screen, winning an Emmy for the role and being nominated four more times. You ever feel like nothing good was ever going to happen to you? Yeah, and nothing did. So what? Especially considering he's nothing like his character. He's 56 with gray hair now. He never stopped working after The Sopranos. Theater, film, network TV, pilots, some good, some bad. That's in his own words. But it keeps coming back to Christopher, a mobster with other aspirations for life. He's somebody who was always trying really hard, whether it was to be a mobster and to get sober or to be in a relationship, to climb the ladder of success to write a screenplay like he had a lot of aspirations and he actually did the work he wasn't slack about those things that drive seems to be one of the few things imperioli and his character have in common michael imperioli is now appearing in a lead role in another hit hbo show the white lotus welcome to the white lotus in sicily its second installment takes place in italy Imperioli is Dominic de Grasso, an Italian-American man traveling back to the motherland with his father and son to visit the village of their ancestors. This is his first major role in some time. Meanwhile, The Sopranos is enjoying somewhat of a revival at the moment. There is a prequel, The Many Saints of Newark, which came out last year, and COVID lockdowns presented the opportunity to revisit the show. HBO's parent company said Sopranos viewership went up 179% early in the pandemic. And that's in part because some of those viewers are finally old enough to enjoy it. A lot of shows don't get that kind of second wind, you know what I mean? So for young people in their late teens and early 20s to be discovering it, not just discovering, but really passionate about their love for it is kind of remarkable. And it makes me very happy. Along with the new fan base came memes. On TikTok or in Twitter jokes, Christopher specifically has become a fan favorite with Gen Z. And Imperioli is laughing right along with you. I do. I get a kick out of it. I mean, I take it as a a very high compliment to be the subject of people's memes. Um. (laughs) (laughs) As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Goodfellas, Martin Scorsese's famous 1990 mobster film, was one of Imperioli's first movie roles. It's part of why Sopranos creator David Chase wanted to work with him. He had come from Goodfellas, and so... You know, in my head, he was very cool. He plays Spider, a bartender that gets shot in the foot and later killed by Joe Pesci's character. Spider, on your way over here, bring me a cut of water, huh? We found that immediately, that uh, it was Pesci, it was De Niro, and uh, Ray Liotta. It was just somebody we felt immediately that he understood intrinsically who Spider was 
and he understood the situation and the atmosphere. Director Martin Scorsese told me while filming Spider's death scene, Imperioli accidentally crushed a glass in his hand and was sent to the hospital. Scorsese didn't want to make him redo the scene, but the actor insisted. We were really taken by the fact that he was so dedicated. You want to get it just right. And he improvised so well with Pesci in character, in context of that world. He was not acting. He was behaving in it. You know, I, I always considered him one of the finest we had worked with. Spider is only on screen in Goodfellas for about five minutes total, but fans still love and remember him decades later. Why? He was so truthful that you don't, you can't forget him. You just can't forget the kid. Now, over 30 years later, that kid, or at least the actor behind him, is also a published fiction writer. His coming-of-age novel, The Perfume Burned His Eyes, came out a few years ago. He's also a lead singer. I feel like Michael sort of represents like a pure artist. He's genuinely into making art, sort of expressing a statement. That was Imperioli's bandmate, Elijah Amaton, who plays bass in their rock band Zopa. Recently, they've been touring since Imperioli moved back to New York from L.A. during the pandemic. Zopa's crowds are undeniably made up of a few Sopranos diehards, but that's fine by them. Amaton actually didn't know who Imperioli was when they first started playing together. If you only know him from films or TV, you really have a very skewed idea of what he's like, actually. He described Imperioli as a quiet, humble guy, regularly lost in thought. Part of that might be that Imperioli and his wife are Tibetan Buddhist. Zopa, their band name, translates to patience in Tibetan. In my 20s, all I did was try to be, you know, successful at my work. You know, you kind of think these things are going to complete you as a human being because you work so hard towards them. And then when they come and come to fruition, you think that that should be an end in itself, and it's not. He says he picked up martial arts as a way of kicking some bad habits, tobacco, alcohol, and more. That also led him to meditation. During the pandemic, he started regularly streaming meditation classes for anyone to join, for free, simply to share his practices. Session two, Meditation 101. Thank you for joining me today. And on YouTube, you can find Meditation with Michael Imperioli. Let us start with uh, the nine purifying breaths. I look at Buddhism much more like a science than anything else, than a religion or even a philosophy, kind of a science of mind, really. So in that way, it's been very helpful just to live. Michael Imperioli has over 100 acting credits on IMDb. Many of them you probably haven't seen. The ones you have, most of them have one thing in common. Imperioli is playing an Italian-American, and he says he doesn't feel typecast. Well, it doesn't get old if it's something that's good. Throughout my career, I've always done a lot of things that nobody really sees. So I never really felt stereotyped. When you're doing things that are less commercial, uh, the people making them have more leeway in casting. They're a little bit more imaginative and take more risks and cast you not just based on the surface thing or the immediate, you know, perception of you. Imperially knows he'll always be known as Christopher Moltisanti. And honestly, he's okay with that. Look, it's very hard to work as an actor, period, like as a profession and have some kind of longevity in this business. And it's even harder to create a character that people remember you for. But David Chase, the man responsible for the character that supposedly defines Michael Imperioli, he disagrees. I'm glad it makes him happy, but it's also not exactly true. We don't know what he's going to be remembered for. I'm going to the premiere of White Lotus. Who knows, that could change everything. Season two of The White Lotus premieres on HBO this Sunday. Erica Ryan, NPR News. Oh, that's awesome.
This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank USA NA. And from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Newton Country Day a Sacred Heart School preparing girls grades 5 to 12 to be strong leaders in a global society. Open house November 6th, newtoncountryday.org. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The original wild man of rock and roll, Jerry Lee Lewis, has died at the age of 87. He was a brash maverick with a blonde pompadour and a long career. Uh, it's been some hard living and some hard rocking and some hard rolling, but I'm still rocking on. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. More on the life and complicated legacy of Jerry Lee Lewis coming up. As Elon Musk takes the reins at Twitter, we hear how what happens with Twitter matters even to the majority not on the platform. And a climate activist group has been vandalizing famous European artwork as a form of protest. One member talks about why. They saw something valuable and precious being damaged or destroyed. Where's that emotional response when we're set to lose our real sunflowers? More on the impact of the protests coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Paul Pelosi, husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, is recovering at a San Francisco hospital after being attacked in the couple's home early this morning. As NPR's Barbara Spahn explains, authorities say the investigation into the attack remains ongoing. San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott told reporters that officers who responded to the Pelosi residence at 2.27 a.m. encountered an adult male and Mr. Pelosi both holding a hammer. The suspect pulled the hammer away from Ms. Pelosi and violently assaulted him with it. Both the suspect, identified as 42-year-old David DePepe, and Pelosi were transported to a hospital for treatment. A source briefed on the attack told NPR the assailant was searching for Speaker Pelosi and confronted her husband, shouting, Where is Nancy? Pelosi, who is second in line to the presidency after the vice president, was not at home at the time of the break-in and attack. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News. Washington. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is reporting a sharp uptick in hospitalizations due to the flu. NPR's Rob Stein reports the CDC says the rate at which people are being hospitalized was higher last week than it's been this early in the flu season in more than a decade. The flu appears to be spreading quickly among all ages, especially in the South, but looks like it's hitting young kids especially hard. In fact, the first pediatric death from the flu has now been reported. Because so few people are masking or social distancing anymore, doctors have been bracing for the possibility the flu would return this year and hit hard and early. 
the early flu season comes as many hospitals are already being strained because of a resurgence of other respiratory viruses as well, particularly RSV, and as experts are bracing for yet another surge in COVID-19 infections. Rob Stein, NPR News. Online retail giant Amazon says it's returned to profitability after two consecutive quarterly losses, though the company's stock tumbled due to weaker-than-expected revenue. Amazon reported revenue of $127.1 billion, below analyst estimates. Commerce Department reports prices rose last month, but spending was up even faster. More from NPR, Scott Horsley. Annual inflation, as measured by the Commerce Department, was 6.2% in September, unchanged from the month before. Prices rose three-tenths of a percent between August and September, similar to the increase between July and August. The Commerce Department's yardstick is distinct from the Consumer Price Index. It's closely watched by the Federal Reserve, which is expected to order another hike in interest rates next week. Personal spending rose twice as fast as prices last month, up six-tenths of a percent. People spent less money on gasoline in September, but more money on housing, electricity, and travel. Personal income was also up last month, but not enough to keep pace with the extra spending. The personal savings rate declined to just 3.1 percent. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Dow jumped 828 points today. You're listening to... NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The developers of Massachusetts' next two offshore wind projects are asking state regulators to put on pause their review of the contracts. Commonwealth Wind and Mayflower Wind say price increases, supply shortages, and interest rate hikes make their financial plans no longer viable. They want to use the delay to reevaluate their finances and see if they can qualify for more federal tax incentives. Meanwhile, work is moving forward on the wind farm that we built south of Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket. Today it was announced that the city of Salem will receive $34 million from the federal government to develop an industrial area to support the project. The city is working with Vineyard Wind and another developer to construct a 700-foot-long wharf for uh, and space for workers to assemble wind turbines. Boston City Council hearing today addressed measures to protect people from having their drinks spiked at bars and college parties, leaving them vulnerable to sexual assault. Boston University Chief Health Officer Judy Platt testified more students are reporting they believe they were drugged. We're hearing more about it. The challenge is we don't know the extent of it, and it's not something that we typically track. The chair of the Boston Licensing Board, Kathleen Joyce, says she's held eight hearings looking into the alleged incidents and has been meeting with owners of drinking establishments. As the owners, they knew that they hadn't drugged the person, but they were afraid that they would be held responsible. So we explained to them, call us, we will help you. You want to help the patron? You will not be punished. This week, Boston police issued a community alert after receiving several reports of people who say they unknowingly ingested drugs slipped into their drinks at local bars. They're urging people to never leave a drink unattended. And Cambridge police are releasing videos of a suspect in three separate sexual assaults since February. The victims gave similar descriptions of a man. Cambridge police have posted the videos on their website, and they are asking for the public's help in identifying the suspect. In the forecast, chilly breeze out there right now. A lovely late afternoon, though. Tonight, it turns from chilly to cold. Temperatures all the way down to the mid-30s. Then a pretty comfortable weekend ahead. Highs around 60 or a bit above both tomorrow and Sunday. A good dose of sunshine both days. 52 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Athena Health. Creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. As of yesterday, the world's richest man, the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX, Elon Musk, has now officially become the owner of another company, Twitter. He immediately fired key executives, including the CEO, in a clear sign that he wants to overhaul the social media company. Which is important because although Twitter is used by fewer than one in four U.S. adults, it has a way of making things important. During the pro-democracy protests of the Arab Spring, it acted like a megaphone, communicating to the world outside the Middle East in North Africa what was happening on the ground. But it was also where election misinformation and conspiracy theories reached a much larger audience after the 2020 vote, ultimately contributing to the U.S. Capitol insurrection on January 6th, 2021. We're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. But the platform that allowed former President Trump to spread lies over and over is the same one that Black Lives Matter activists used to call out injustices and call for accountability and call on supporters for nationwide protests. In other words, what happens on Twitter doesn't always stay on Twitter. For more on that, I spoke earlier today with Shannon McGregor. She's a professor at the University of North Carolina School of Journalism and Media. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being with us. So you pointed out this morning on Twitter itself that most (laughs) people out there are not on Twitter. But let me ask you to explain why Twitter matters, like even to people who don't use the platform. So like you said, most people are not on Twitter, but the reason it matters, who runs it, what the content moderation policies are, is because this platform in particular plays a really outsized role in journalism and politics. Journalists are on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Politicians, candidates, activists are on Twitter. So what happens on Twitter often becomes what is the news. And what happens on Twitter informs decisions that politicians make and shapes the way then that many more people who are not on Twitter come to understand what's happening in the world. What main examples come to mind when you think of the outsized role Twitter can play, whether we're talking about politics, journalism, democracy? Yeah, I mean, I think we can think of uh, exciting and depressing examples. (laughs) Um, For instance, you know, I think often uh, of how important Twitter was for the Me Too movement um, when millions of women, you know, shared their experiences of sexual assault and sexual harassment in a way that I think made people feel not so alone in that and really raised awareness about um, the need to change things in that area. But I also think about, you know, all the lies around not only the 2020 election, but around the way our elections are run more broadly that led up to the attempted coup on January 6th and that continue to undermine these midterm elections that are upcoming. Well, now that Elon Musk is at the helm of Twitter, tell me, what will you be looking out for with how he tries to change Twitter's policies? Let's talk about what he's already done and what you suspect he will eventually do. Well, he's already uh, sort of cleaned house at the C-suite level, right, Uh, Mm -hmm. firing several executives. And he's promised that he wants to make this more of a sort of quote unquote free speech zone. And that means that we're likely to see him uh, change the content moderation policies to be more forgiving, to allow more types of uh, speech that's not currently allowed. Two things I'll be looking for is how quickly that happens, that content moderation change, 
and whether or not even before that officially happens, if other people who are already on sort of the border of pushing that line continue to push it further, assuming that this change is coming. Well, as you have already mentioned, Elon Musk is someone who says he champions the First Amendment. He calls himself a free speech absolutist. And I'm just wondering, you know, if that is going to be his governing principle, how do you think that could ultimately change the influence that Twitter has on on society, on democracy? I think that one of the things that might change is when, you know, there's less guardrails around content moderation, what we see on other platforms that have less guardrails, is that it can very quickly turn into a place that is filled with some of the most vile thoughts that that can be imagined, that people are attacked and harassed even more than they are already uh, on Twitter as it currently is. And frankly, that's not the type of uh, social media platform that most people are interested in. And so I think that may over time decrease its influence uh, in journalism, in politics, in our country and in the other countries where it plays a big role, because I think ultimately that's just not a space that people want to be in. That is Shannon McGregor, political communications scholar at the University of North Carolina. Thank you very much. Thank you. After our conversation, Elon Musk tweeted the company will form, quote, a content moderation council with widely diverse viewpoints. A rock and roll pioneer who mystified the world with both his piano playing and personal life has died. Jerry Lee Lewis was 87. He shot to stardom and fell from grace, but always seemed to find his way back. Blake Farmer of member station WPLN in Nashville has this remembrance. It was 1957, and this was deemed obscene. All I did was turn the machine on, and we got a whole lot of shaking going on. One take. That's the late producer Jack Clement talking to NPR in 2000. He helped introduce Jerry Lee Lewis to the world, capturing his music in the legendary Sun Studios of Memphis. Shake it, baby. Yeah. You can shake it one time for me. Get a hell of a house to come over, baby. Lewis would later say that he knew he had a hit if it came out in one take. He was part of a lot of Sun Studios' magic. He played piano on records by Carl Perkins and others. He was the last surviving member of a seminal moment in rock and roll, a 1956 impromptu session with Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, and Carl Perkins. They were dubbed the Million Dollar Quartet. Lewis grew up in rural Louisiana, sneaking into the black clubs, hiding under the tables until he got kicked out. Something different about it, it was blues, and it was kind of rock blues. I, was something, I just loved the blues, man. It was great, you know. It was a real thing. And, uh, I always kind of figured I was a real thing, too. That's Lewis from a 1987 documentary called I Am What I Am. 
His parents took out a mortgage to buy a piano when he was eight years old, and he taught himself to play, combining the boogie beats from the black clubs and some of what he heard on Sundays at his Pentecostal church. Religion influenced more than the music. This was a time when rock and roll was deemed downright demonic. The tape was rolling during a whiskey-infused exchange between Lewis and the famed owner of Sun Records, Sam Phillips, who believed Lewis could do good with rock and roll. You can say so. No. No, no, no. Yes, you never make it. How can the how can the devil save so? What are you talking about? Man, I got the devil in me. If I didn't have I'd be a Christian. That was the session when his biggest hit was also captured on tape. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. Too much love drives a man insane. You broke my will, the blood of three. Lewis took this music on tour, where his performances were sexually charged, suggestively working the microphone as he stood up and pounded the keys. Myra Lewis, his third wife, says her husband was a walking contradiction, a wild man on stage, boozing and womanizing, who wouldn't allow a drop of alcohol in his own home. She talked to WHYY's Fresh Air in 1989. Jerry sat in judgment of himself continuously. He was a man who was tormented daily by this, his expectations of what he should be doing versus in reality what he was doing. But it wasn't the hard living that led to his first plummet in popularity. It was the fact that he married Myra, his second cousin, when she was 13 years old. On a tour to England, the tabloids were ruthless. For 10 years, Jerry's records were held off the air. He could not get a decent concert date. There were certain radio stations that would not touch him at all. He went from making $10,000 a night to 200, but he played all the beer joints that would have him and clawed his way back. It would be a decade before he had another hit recorded in Nashville. One by one, they're turning out the lights. I've been feeding that old just to hold you tight. He would later play at the Grand Ole Opry, famously declaring from the stage that he was a rock and rolling, country and western, rhythm and blues singing expletive. He earned the nickname The Killer, not for his music or wildlife, but because that's what he called everybody else when he couldn't remember their names. So that's what they called him. Lewis would get married and divorced several times more. He'd run afoul of the IRS, the DEA, and the Memphis police when he drunkenly slammed his car into the gates of Graceland with a pistol on his dash. Most of us are amateur sinners at best when compared to Jerry Lee. But then there are times when he is evangelical. Author Rick Bragg wrote a best-selling biography of Lewis in 2014. Bragg says in his old age, Lewis tried to set things right and was able to find redemption. He gave Hank Williams credit for getting the white working man off his knees long enough to enjoy some music. But it was Jerry Lee that put him to dancing. I thought that was the prettiest thing he said. And how can that be a sin? Or, as Lewis himself put it to NPR in 2010, I've been up and down the road, <laughs> and uh, it's been some hard living and some hard rocking and some hard rolling, but I'm still rocking on. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. So kind, not to tell this world that you might, 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 that you might live
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, an update on the war in Ukraine, tremendous gains, and a major challenge ahead. Also, climate activists' latest tactics and whether they're inspiring or alienating their target audience. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College with over 70 part-time graduate programs in high-growth areas such as analytics, global marketing management, health informatics, financial management, and software development. Graduate admissions information session Tuesday, November 15th. More at bu.edu slash met slash events. A big end to the week on Wall Street. The Dow notched its fourth straight week of gains as it rose more than 2.5%, 829 points. It finished at 32,862. S&P gained just under 2.5% to end the day at 3,901. NASDAQ jumped almost 3% today to end the session at 11,102. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a MedEx Medicare supplemental plan that works for you. Visit bluecrossma.com go. And Innuendo, with the Hunter Douglas Season of Style event, featuring the PowerView Smart Motorization System. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo and Natick and Innuendo.com. This will be another weekend when you can't drive through the Sumner Tunnel. The ongoing renovation project is closing the Sumner from 11 tonight until early Monday morning. Tunnel closures on weekends will continue until next May, including some holiday weekends. In the forecast, some clouds around tonight. Temperatures all the way down to the mid-30s. Then we're in for a lovely weekend. Sunshine in a big way tomorrow and Sunday. Not too cold. Highs about 60 tomorrow. Just topping that on Sunday. 52 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity, with Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Ukrainian forces have made tremendous gains over the last several weeks, recapturing wide swaths of territory in the east and northeast. But now they're bracing for what could be one of their toughest battles yet, Kherson. They've made progress towards the strategically important southern city, but the Russians are dug in. And as NPR's Franco Ordonez reports, Ukrainian officers don't think victory will be easy. Just a note, this story does include the sound of gunfire. Dozens of Ukrainian soldiers push their way through a tall field of grass. They confront an enemy less than a mile away, and the battle intensifies. It's a training exercise on a military camp in eastern Ukraine, but a key one for this newly formed brigade that heads to the front lines as early as next week to face the Russians. Major Roman Kovalev is leading the new battalion. He tells his soldiers and anyone who will listen that the Russians should not be underestimated. 
To be true, the Russians know how to fight. Despite Russia's recent losses, Kovalev insists the Russians won't be underprepared. They learn fast. They're not the same forces as they were in the spring. It is hard to fight them. And he says the Russians are more deliberate in how they use their resources and advantages in artillery. Now they understand they'll face strong resistance, so they're changing their tactics. They're moving more cautiously, trying to take our land piece by piece. There's a lot at stake in Kherson. Kherson is very important for Russia and also for Ukraine. That's Alexander Musienko, a military expert based in Kyiv. For the Ukrainians, taking back the regional capital would be huge for morale and a strategic win. It would also set the stage to take back parts of the neighboring Zaporizhia region, including a nuclear plant that the Russians control. And it would be devastating for the Russians. Not only did they illegally annex Kherson recently, but Musienko said it would deal a blow to their plans to cut off Ukraine's access of the Black Sea. If we will occupy Kherson, we will destroy the Russian plan to move forward to Krivoyrik or to Mykolaiv or to Odessa. It would be huge, really huge. Kherson is symbolic for the South. And as eager as the Ukrainians are to take it back, Major Hidovi Havrish says Russians are not going to give up control without a bitter fight. We made our push. We made progress. They reacted. And now we need to make new opportunities. Some of the newly mobilized Russian conscripts have been sent to help in Kherson. Local officials installed by Moscow are also building territorial defense units and encouraging willing men to join. Karel Stramousov is the Russian-installed deputy minister of the region. He's trying to paint a picture that they're holding the Ukrainians at bay. Meanwhile, the Moscow-appointed city officials flee into Russia proper. As for Major Kovalev, he says he's not concerned about additional Russian forces. Let them all come. The more that come, the more that will remain here. For him, the Battle of Kherson is also personal. After Kherson, the Ukrainians can turn to an even bigger prize, the Crimean Peninsula, which is where Kovalev grew up. He says he hasn't been home in eight years. Sometimes I dream about it. I dream about the sea. I dream about my home city. My soul is there. It's only a matter of time, he says, before his dreams come true. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Dnipro, Ukraine. The recent vandalizing of several well-known European paintings by climate activists with food certainly got the public's attention. With a major United Nations climate conference right around the corner, NPR's Chloe Veltman looks at the impact of these art-related protests in galvanizing support around urgent environmental issues. Over the past couple of weeks, Phoebe Plummer has been besieged with media requests. I spoke to somebody from Poland this morning. Yesterday was Belgium and Germany. The 21-year-old student and climate activist says they've lost count of the number of interviews they've given since October 14th. That was the day they hurled tomato soup at an artwork in London's National Gallery to protest the UK government's continuing support of the fossil fuel industry. And now I'm having to, like, schedule my uni lectures around when I'm doing interviews. Like, that is insane because I'm a little kid who's just scared about their future. 
Plummer says her activism group, Just Stop Oil, picked Van Gogh's sunflowers for its iconic status. She says the tactics, born out of anger and frustration, were simply focused on eliciting as big an emotional response from as many people as possible. Because they saw something beautiful and valuable and precious and they thought it was being damaged or destroyed. Where's that emotional response when we're set to lose our real sunflowers? Max Boykoff is an environmental studies professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. He monitors media coverage around climate change. This has definitely been something that's generated considerable media attention. Boykoff isn't just talking about the sunflowers incident in the UK. He's also referring to other art-related protests by climate activists, like the one Thursday in Holland involving a Vermeer, and earlier this week in Germany, where activists threw mashed potatoes at a famous Monet. Boykoff says these types of stunts can elicit a far bigger response than more traditional forms of protest like rallies and sit-ins typically inspire, in part because of their artfulness. If you can be creative, if you can add even an element of levity that helps draw people in, that is resonant in an information-rich society that we're in right now. And he says the activists' timing makes a lot of sense in the run-up to the big UN climate conference next month. I do see it seeding some ground for the conversations that may emerge at the climate talks. But while Boykoff applauds the activists for their creativity, others question the effectiveness of the use of such publicity-grabbing shock tactics, even if the artworks in question didn't suffer much damage. Many people just recoil at the sight of seeming to deface treasured art, and that's not the best way to win hearts and minds. Veteran climate science communications expert Susan Joy Hassel says she's all for nonviolent direct action. And she says she's been impressed with the young activists' articulate and impassioned speeches under the glare of the spotlight. But she says they're firing at the wrong targets. Protests targeted more squarely at the real villains of this story. The fossil fuel companies, the banks financing them, the politicians who do their bidding. Those most culpable in the climate crisis are more effective. Oakland-based visual artist and climate activist Faviana Rodriguez says at this point, fighting climate change and its perpetrators requires an arsenal of approaches, including doing whatever it takes to get people's attention. I think we need to look at a spectrum of engagement because, frankly, when we speak nicely and we use the data, it has not worked. Data has not moved people. Rodriguez says she would be happy if someone threw food at one of her artworks as a form of protest. Art is supposed to elicit emotions. And if my art can elicit so much emotions that people lose their I am like, success. And she says Vermeer, Van Gogh and Monet would probably feel the same way too. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. The forecast zip up out there. A chilly breeze is blowing. Temperatures are heading downward. 50 degrees right now. Tonight it should be downright cold. Lows about 37 with cloudy skies. Weekend's looking mighty fine though. Sunshine tomorrow about 60 for a high. Then on Sunday pretty much the same thing. Sunny skies but inching up to 63. Monday could see some clouds return. In sports it's a Massachusetts versus Ohio night in sports tonight. The Cleveland Cavaliers will be at the Garden to play the Celts, and the Bruins are out in Columbus to take on the Blue Jackets. This is WBUR 
It's 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Boston Ballet's As Anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere, November 3rd to 13th, tickets at bostonballet.org. What's going on with Britain's Conservative Party and with the nation they've been elected to lead? Hasta la vista, baby! I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. Some mistakes were made, and I have been elected to fix them. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband was attacked early this morning at their San Francisco home. He's hospitalized after undergoing surgery for injuries to his skull. Police were called to the home to check on Paul Pelosi, where they witnessed the suspect beating the 82-year-old with a hammer before he was subdued. A source briefed on the attack says David DePepe was heard shouting, Nancy, where is Nancy? Here's San Francisco Police Chief... William Scott. Mr. DePepe will be booked at the San Francisco County Jail on the following charges. Attempted homicide, assault with a deadly weapon, elder abuse, burglary, and several several other additional felonies. Nancy Pelosi has been campaigning for Democratic candidates in an effort to keep control of the House in the midterm elections. Virginia's top elections official apologized this week for a series of errors related to voter registration and mail-in ballots. She says the mistakes have been corrected and everyone eligible to vote will be able to do so. From member station VPM, Ben Pavier has more. The Virginia Department of Elections sent over 175,000 mailings to people's homes rather than their P.O. box, a problem if they didn't have a mailbox. Some 60,000 mailings contained incorrect voting information. On top of that, an IT glitch caused 107,000 voter registration files to sit in limbo over the summer. In an interview, Commissioner of Elections Susan Beals said the state sent out new corrected mailings and fixed the IT error. I absolutely take responsibility for the mistakes and I apologize to those voters who were impacted. Separately, a software error at the DMV caused around 3,500 voters to receive letters mistakenly telling them they were ineligible to vote. A spokesperson said the error was fixed in June and voters' data was not affected. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Richmond. Stocks finish sharply higher on Wall Street to end the week. The Dow up more than 2.5%. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Police and the school department are investigating how a seven-year-old child managed to bring a loaded gun to a Dorchester school yesterday. Police confiscated the weapon. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is pledging to hold accountable the person who allowed the child access to the gun. The incident follows the shooting deaths of four people since this weekend. The Reverend Kevin Peterson with the New Democracy Coalition says distrust of law enforcement is a problem and more community policing is needed. If we had a police unit walking the street down the Washington Street corridor where a young man was murdered this week, perhaps that would not have happened by having a presence there on that corridor, which is considered one of the most dangerous in the city of Boston. 
Boston police are appealing to the public for help in solving the recent crimes. The union that represents correction officers is asking a judge to block the state of Massachusetts from requiring officers to wear body cameras as part of a pilot program. On Monday, State Department of Correction plans to start testing the use of the devices for three months. However, no officers volunteered to wear the cameras. The union argues the correction department does not have the right to force officers to take part. City of Salem is expected to be jammed this weekend before Halloween. All this month, record-breaking crowds have descended on the Witch City for its haunted happening celebration. Salem Police Chief Lucas Miller says the city is giving a warm welcome to everyone. Despite all the visitors we have and, and the congestion, it's a family affair and people are coming here to have a good time. And, and I would say the vast majority of them do have a good time. Miller says if you don't have reservations, you should wait until later in November to go because everything is booked through Monday. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Chestnut Hill School, leading the way in elementary education since 1860. Grow today, transform tomorrow. On the web at tchs.org. Chilly breeze blowing out there overnight tonight. Pretty cold. Lows about 37. Lots of clouds around. Then for the weekend, a gorgeous weekend, in fact. Sunshine in a big way tomorrow and Sunday. Not too chilly. Highs around 60 tomorrow. Just topping that on Sunday. 50 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. From Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Early this morning, Paul Pelosi, husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, was brutally attacked in their California home. It's a developing story, and the intruder's motivations remain to be seen. But it comes as a new government report on domestic terror threats shows the number of domestic terrorism investigations and arrests in the United States shot up last year compared to a year earlier. NPR's domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef joins us now. And Odette, we are still learning about what happened today. But this report does tell us about domestic terrorism last year. What jumps out to you? Well, Juana, this is the second annual report that the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security have sent to members of certain congressional committees. Uh, it's required by law. And it's basically a roundup that shares some numbers and trends in the domestic terrorism landscape. It also talks about how various agencies are working together on the issue. And this report's important because it gives some baseline information to policymakers and researchers who are concerned about the increased threat we're seeing from domestic terrorists, particularly from violent white supremacists. And so the main standouts in this report are two numbers. First, the FBI investigated 2,700 potential cases of domestic terrorism last year. That's nearly twice what they investigated the year before, Juana. And then the second number is how many domestic terrorism arrests were made. 
Last year, it was 800 compared with just 180 the year before. Okay, and Odettas, I'm thinking through the timing here. That would include the aftermath of the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol, right? That's right. And those January 6th cases are a huge part of this increase. One thing that experts say could be clearer is how the FBI categorized those January 6th cases. Many appear to have been filed under civil unrest, but we know that there were members of organized extremist groups there, like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. And so the report doesn't clarify whether those individuals were all lumped into this civil unrest category. Michael Jensen of the University of Maryland says that kind of detail is actually really important because it helps to clarify where federal resources need to go. These are individuals that are pursuing certain social, political, religious, economic goals. And in order to combat that, especially in terms of prevention, we have to understand what it is they're trying to achieve. We have to understand what their grievances are. We have to understand the narratives that they're using to recruit individuals. That all does seem important. So, Odette, are lawmakers working with the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security to make this report better in the future? And I guess I want to ask, what does this report tell lawmakers about what they can or need to do? Well, everyone says there are still major gaps in the information that federal law enforcement is gathering on this issue, Juana. Um, Senator Gary Peters of Michigan leads the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. He's been wanting 10 years of data, and he wants it to include more data from local officials that might fall under domestic terrorism. He says the FBI and DHS continue to say they can't access those numbers. But that's not acceptable to me or members of our committee. These are our two national organizations uh, focused on crime and terrorism issues. And if we're going to have an effective national response to what is considered the most lethal terrorist threat facing this country from domestic uh, terrorists, we need to have that information. So it's not clear that this report is going to move the needle, Juana, when it comes to new policies that can help stem the continued rise of domestic terrorism in the U.S. NPR's Odette Youssef, thank you. Thank you. Brazilians head to the polls on Sunday to pick a new president in what has become a very contentious race. The election pits the far-right incumbent against a former leftist president, and polls show the final count will be close. With the race so tight, both men will need votes from women to win, but as NPR's Kerry Kahn reports, both parties struggled to appeal to women, especially female lawmakers. Juliana Cardojo is a Sao Paulo city councilwoman and a force to be reckoned with. Her fellow city councilman, Andre Couchard, got a taste of that at a meeting this week in council chambers. She's wearing a bright pink t-shirt that in Portuguese reads, Fight Like a Woman, and she wasn't having any of his repeated interruptions during a debate about public aid to kids who've lost their mothers through violence. Cardojo, who identifies as indigenous, demands respect and eventually wrestles back the mic. Politics is difficult for women in Brazil. Current President Jair Bolsonaro has alienated many female politicians and women voters, too, with his misogynistic comments. He once told a lawmaker he wouldn't rape her because she didn't deserve it. 
He initially vetoed a bill to provide menstruation products to low-income women, yet later funded Viagra and penile implants to the military. Former President Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, who has a slim lead in the polls against the incumbent, is more inclusive but hasn't made promises about women representation in his government, only to say they will play a significant role. Cardozo, who is a member of Da Silva's Workers' Party, is undeterred. After the blow-up with the councilman, she tells those in the council chambers that she's passionate. Women's issues hit close to home. My dad was killed when I was five and I will always fight against violence. Her father came from Terena ancestors in a neighboring state and her mother is black. Cardoso, who is 43, was just elected to Brazil's lower house of Congress, one of five indigenous women who won a seat in the elections held on October 2nd. While that gain is significant, in all, only 14 more women were elected to the lower house this year. They now make up only 17 percent of the total body. Brazil always enters as a case that does very poorly for electing women to office. Jennifer Piscopo, a political scientist at Occidental College in Los Angeles, says there are laws on the books to fund and promote women candidates. Brazil's laws mandate that parties set aside 30 percent of their slots for women and that 30 percent of a public fund goes to those campaigns. But Piscopo says men find ways to get around those quotas and leave it up to women to lodge complaints. So it really puts women in a very tough position because they have to denounce their own party for treating them badly. And that's consequential for their political futures. Back at Sao Paulo City Hall, staffers are surprising Councilwoman and newly elected Congresswoman Juliana Cardoso with a birthday cake and treats. She says she is not going to Brasilia, the country's capital, alone. Nós somos um coletivo que tem militância na área da assistência social, da saúde, da criança e adolescente, dos indígenas, dos direitos humanos. I have a big group there and we will fight together to preserve indigenous lands women's rights, and human rights. And she adds, I am ready. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Sao Paulo, Brazil. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. What's in a name? Well, maybe a job. Adrian Ma and Waylon Wong from NPR's daily economics podcast, The Indicator, dig into some new research looking at people's names and pronunciation and how it might affect their job prospects. There's a famous saying that the sweetest sound a person can hear is the sound of their very own name. And that might be true if people don't routinely butcher your name. For Chiga, it happens a lot. For people who, are, who do not have Chinese uh, language background, they probably don't, don't even know how to start. Chi is an economist at Vassar College, and he teamed up with another economist named Stephen Wu at Hamilton College. In their research, Stephen and Chi started with a list of names, specifically the names of 1,500 grad students who were getting their PhDs in economics and actively looking for jobs. To decide which names were hard to pronounce, Chi and Steven used a few different methods. One involved running the names through a computer algorithm. Names with letter combinations less common in English were rated more difficult. 
Another way Chi and Steven measured what they called name fluency, they paid a bunch of people to sit in front of a computer, showed them one name at a time on the screen, and asked them to pronounce it. As they see a name on the screen, John, David, Adrian, Kui, right? So you might pause before one uh, name that is looking unfamiliar. And so by looking at the timing that it takes between clicking, we could use that as a measure of how difficult a name would be. After sorting out the names that were more difficult to pronounce, Stephen and Chi looked at where these young economists ended up working. Did they land a plum academic job, which Stephen says are generally considered the most prestigious kind of econ gig? Or did they end up working for the government or in the private sector? Chi says the result was striking. Those with harder-to-pronounce names were 10% less likely to land an academic job. And when they did, they more often ended up at less prestigious universities. It's like they incurred some kind of name pronunciation penalty. Yeah, and interestingly, this penalty was a little less severe for PhDs who came from a top-20 research program, which which I guess is kind of a silver lining. Bottom line, the people doing the hiring in these econ departments seem to levy some degree of name penalty on candidates with harder-to-pronounce names. You know, it seems that there is this bias simply driven by name fluency. Uh, To me, that's a little bit surprising. Like, it kind of goes against this idea that economists are always, like, very coldly rational. Exactly. But Chi and Steven did not stop there. In a separate analysis, they looked at people applying for private sector jobs, and they found those with harder-to-pronounce names got fewer callbacks from employers. Some people may hear this and wonder, should I change my name or, or use a different name on a job application? And of course, a lot of people do already do that. But Stephen says the onus really ought to be on employers. People may not do this consciously, but it could be a subconscious thing where, oh, I'm looking at two resumes, pretty similar. I toss one to the side. There's research that shows that simply being aware of potential biases can sometimes limit them or make them a little less severe. Waylon Wong. Adrian Ma, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, the Netflix adaptation of All Quiet on the Western Front. The classic novel about the horrors of World War I was directed by a German man and is in the German language. The story behind it coming up. Celtics have got a, the garden tonight as they face the Cleveland Cavaliers. Cavs have got a three-game winning streak going 7.40 start time tonight. Meanwhile, the Bruins are also playing an Ohio team. They visit the Columbus Blue Jackets for a 7.05 game. The Bees are near the top of the Atlantic Division. The Blue Jackets are in the cellar of the Metropolitan Division. It's 5.48. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. Your mobile phone is a radio on the go. Listen on the WBR mobile app wherever you are and stay informed about all the day's news. In the forecast, some clouds around tonight, temperatures all the way down to the mid-30s, and then we're in for a lovely weekend. Sunshine in a big way tomorrow and Sunday, too. Shouldn't be too chilly. Highs about 60 tomorrow and then just topping that 
on Sunday. And if you are a really early riser, note that early October mornings, just before dawn, you get to see the brightest star in the sky, Sirius. It's low in the sky and it's got a slight pulse to it. It can even have some flashing colors worth getting up for. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson's On Beckett. Bill Irwin's deeply funny show at the Paramount Theater, October 26th through 30th. Get tickets at artsemerson.org. Brazil is now deciding between two of the biggest political figures in the modern history of Brazilian politics, who represent very different visions for the country and who want to take the country in very different directions. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. This week marks five months since a gunman killed 19 children and two teachers at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Calls for the top Texas law enforcement official to resign over the botched response are growing. Sergio Martinez-Beltran with the Texas Newsroom reports. 91 Texas Department of Public Safety, or DPS, officers arrived at the scene in Uvalde last May 24th, many within minutes, but they and others waited more than an hour to confront the shooter. Kimberly Mata Rubio's 10-year-old daughter Lexi was killed. We're trying to put this puzzle together and we're getting piece by piece and it's scattered. It never really makes sense and it always alters each time another piece of information comes in. After demanding answers from DPS for months, Rubio and the families of other victims now want its director, Steve McCraw, to go. Brett Cross lost his son, Uzziah. He confronted McCraw at a meeting yesterday. Well, Steve, the time is now. If you're a man of your word, you'll resign. We're not waiting any longer. Our families, our community, our state has waited long enough. In response, McCraw said if DPS had failed the families and the community, then he should go. But I can tell you this right now, DPS as an institution did not fail the community, plain and simple. However, Macross says his officers should have confronted the shooter within the first 10 minutes. The parents of some victims say that shows DPS did fail. They say Macross' stance is just another piece of the shifting and contradictory narrative on the police response, something they've sadly gotten used to. For NPR News, I'm Sergio Martinez-Beltran in Austin. All Quiet on the Western Front, the classic novel about the horrors of World War I, as told by a German soldier, has been retold as a movie by a German director. It's out on Netflix today. And as NPR's Rob Schmitz reports, it's a visually stunning and powerfully acted rebuke of war from a country that lost two world wars. And just to note, this story contains the sound of cinematic gunfire. The first scenes of All Quiet on the Western Front are, well, quiet. The sun is rising, a fox feeds her kits in their burrow. The forest above slowly wakes and a gentle rumble signals a coming storm. But it's not thunder. It's the Western Front of World War I in occupied France, and it's anything but quiet. For the next two hours and 20 minutes, viewers of this latest adaptation of Erich Maria Remarque's seminal 1929 novel accompany German soldier Paul Boehmer's journey from an innocent, idealistic young man 
into a hardened, cold vessel whose soul has gone missing amidst the bodies, mud, and trenches of what's known as the Great War. This is the third adaptation of the novel. The most popular one came in 1930, just a year after Remarque's novel was published to wide international acclaim. And the Hollywood film with American actors playing German soldiers won the Oscar for Best Picture. But this adaptation is the most loyal one to the novel. The actors are German, so is the language, and so is the director. You know, as a filmmaker, hopefully you make films that somehow come from, you know, something inside. Edvard Berger, director of All Quiet on the Western Front, says that insight is like your DNA. And my DNA is made up from history lessons, from being born in a country that twice in the last century succumbed to its self-destructive impulses or destructive impulses and started two world wars and brought terror into the world. And, you know, that leaves a tremendous amount of shame and guilt and and horror. And, and I, I mean, I remember my entire childhood, I was ashamed whenever someone asked where I'm from, that I had to say Germany. Throughout Berger's film, the machine of war looms over these German soldiers like an inescapable fate. Combatants die, and armies of sewing machines recycle their uniforms for the next victims. The soundtrack, an ominous three-note blast from an instrument called the harmonium, conjures approaching death. But what makes Berger's adaptation even more German are the scenes he adds to illuminate the sentiments behind Germany's role in not only this war, but the next one, too. Die neue Regierung wird sich mit aller Kraft bemühen, Berger added the real-life character of Matthias Erzberger, a hapless German politician who was chosen to negotiate an armistice with the French after heavy German losses, and who tries to get whatever tiny concession he can from a French general. Monsieur le Maréchal, ich bitte Sie. Be fair to your enemy, otherwise he will hate this peace, says Erzberger, a foreshadowing of what's about to come, a country impoverished by war, leading to the rise of right-wing fascists who are hell-bent on avenging the last one by starting another one. Juste. Vous, vous parlez d'être juste. In response, the French general says, fair, you speak of fairness, before ordering Erzberger to sign the armistice. And he does. Three years later in real life, Erzberger is assassinated by German nationalists. Erzberger isn't Berger's only addition. There's also a fictionalized German general who, upon learning of the armistice, forces his troops to fight until the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. And I wanted to put it in to say, listen, this was just the beginning. This was just the beginning of a much bigger terror and horror and the justification of many more vicious acts to follow. In fact, the original film adaptation of this novel left its own trail of vicious acts when it was screened for the first time in Berlin in 1930. Members of the Nazi party didn't like how the film portrayed war in its cruel and grim reality, and they didn't like that the studio that put it out, Universal, was run by a Jew. In Remarque scholar Edward Smith says they bought up a block of 300 seats at the Berlin premiere. This block of uh, people let go mice, they threw stink bombs, they threw sneezing powder into the air, and they began screaming and yelling and creating loud dis interruptions, and to the point where the police had to be invoked. And for days thereafter, the Nazis, led by propaganda chief Joseph Goebbels, staged demonstrations and speeches that eventually got the movie and Remarque's book banned. 
The book is one of the first the Nazis burned in a series of public burnings. This time around, the German reaction to the film is mostly positive. Some of the only criticism is that it's too violent, especially at a time when war has returned to Europe and is on everyone's minds. Berger says he conceived this film prior to all of this, but could tell it was coming. It just felt like we already knew this was heading towards confrontation. You know, this confrontational discourse got bigger and bigger between people, between parties. He says the rhetoric from populist leaders in Europe and the U.S. delivering messages of division, self-sufficiency, and shunning any efforts to bring countries together, these were the very ideas that Berger says led to the Great War and to Eric Maria Remarque's breakthrough novel chronicling it, and to his own film that reminds us all that if it's war we want, this is what we'll get. Rob Schmitz, NPR News. Berlin. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Orion Pictures presenting Till, based on the true story of Mamie Till Mobley's fight for justice for her son, Emmett Till, starring Danielle Deadweiler, now playing in theaters. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI, to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. A few clouds around tonight. Temperatures all the way down to the mid-30s. So careful with any tender outdoor plants that may need covering up. Then we're in for a beautiful weekend. Sunshine tomorrow and Sunday. Not too chilly. We should have highs around 60 degrees tomorrow and just topping that on Sunday. In the Boston area now, 48 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 5.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental. Reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The man suspected of attacking the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is being charged with attempted homicide. Paul Pelosi is hospitalized with a skull fracture. Police are searching for the attacker's motive. Today is Friday, October 28th, and you're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, California is now a sanctuary for young transgender people who come for medical care. We'll hear about the protections the law offers. The rebirth of a coral reef. A marine ecologist describes an immaculate part of the South Pacific. Crystal clear, blue, turquoise water. And then the corals, pastels, oranges and beiges. It was like an impressionist painting. What the findings can tell us about how to save and protect coral reefs. Also, healthcare costs continue to rise in Massachusetts. How might a potential Maura Healy governorship reckon with them? It's 601.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is heading back to the key swing state of Pennsylvania tonight. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports with less than two weeks before the midterm elections. Biden is trying to drum up support for Democrats who are locked in tight races with Republicans. President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris will deliver remarks at a fundraising reception tonight in Philadelphia, hosted by the state Democratic Party. Biden will once again lend his support to Senate candidate John Fetterman, who's trying to beat back a challenge from Dr. Mehmet Oz, a Republican who has the backing of former President Donald Trump. Biden has helped raise money for Democratic candidates in key swing states in recent weeks, including Pennsylvania. He's also been making stops across the nation, touting his administration's legislative wins. The White House says Biden will vote early in his home state of Delaware on Saturday morning. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. After a lengthy legal battle that dragged on for months, Tesla CEO Elon Musk has taken control of the social media platform Twitter. Musk's $44 billion deal to buy the company closing late yesterday ahead of a deadline today. Musk immediately fired top executives at the company and trading in Twitter stock was suspended as the company goes private. According to securities filing, Twitter shares will be delisted November 8th. Musk, meanwhile, is pledging to do away with a large number of bot accounts on the site. He's also promised to review how and when to possibly reinstate some controversial users who have been suspended, including former President Donald Trump. The iconic musician who made Great Balls of Fire a hit has died. Blake Farmer of member station WPLN in Nashville reports Jerry Lee Lewis pushed the cultural limits of the 1950s. Do I like what? I sure do like it, baby. Jerry Lee Lewis made everything just a little sexual. He played the piano with swagger as he popularized the boogie-woogie style. This was a time when rock and roll was seen by many as the devil's music. In a 1987 documentary, Lewis said he was ahead of his time. The doors that he was opening at the time, the things he was doing, you could do now and be no attention paid to it at all. What I was doing then really shocked a lot of people. His third marriage to his 13-year-old second cousin derailed his budding career for a decade. Drugs and alcohol also helped bring him down, but he was in the first class inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. Even as many consumers have been struggling to deal with higher gas prices, many of the largest oil companies are seeing record profits. ExxonMobil says it broke records with 19 19- $0.66 billion in profits for its latest quarter. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street. The Dow was up 828 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston police have an 18-year-old in custody for allegedly trying to bring a loaded gun into the XL High School in South Boston today. A police spokesman says officers were called to the school and located the suspect off city grounds. That arrest comes one day after a seven-year-old showed up to a Dorchester school with a loaded firearm. Massachusetts officials say an influx of migrants to the state is overwhelming its temporary shelter system. Housing and Economic Development Secretary Mike Keneally says the emergency has prompted the placement of hundreds of unsheltered people in hotels in Methuen and Kingston. Local leaders complained they were not notified about the placements. The Travis Roy Foundation made its final gift today before shutting down. More than $4 million will go to the Spalding Rehab Hospital in Boston and the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. 
Travis Roy was paralyzed in 1995, just seconds into his first game on the Boston University hockey team. He died two years ago at the age of 45. The 14th annual Boston Book Festival is now underway. The event in Copley Square tonight and tomorrow includes a street fair, live music, and talks with authors of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Festival director Deborah Porter says it's a great way to celebrate. The beauty of the book festival is it brings readers together. It's the convening from the very first year. That's what I noticed made it special is that people felt an excitement about being with other, other people who feel the same way they do. All the festival events are free and no pre-registration is required. And a research ship from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute helped rescue 12 people off Virginia after a fishing boat collided with a container ship this morning. The Atlantis located a life raft with a fishing boat crew aboard and transferred them to another vessel. The fishing boat captain was airlifted by the Coast Guard just before his boat sank. The Woods Hole ship was in the area researching methane gas leaks from the ocean floor. In sports, the Bruins face off tonight against the Blue Jackets in Columbus, Ohio. Celtics host the Cleveland Cavaliers tonight at the Garden. And the forecast, pretty cold overnight tonight, down all the way to the mid-30s. Nice weekend, though. Should be sunny tomorrow. Highs about 60. Sunday, sunshine as well. Maybe about 63 degrees. 50 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, was violently attacked in a break-in at their San Francisco home overnight. The intruder is in custody, and Mr. Pelosi is being treated at the hospital. San Francisco Police Chief William Scott described what happened when officers arrived at their home around 2.30 a.m. Our officers observed Mr. Pelosi and the suspect both holding a hammer. The suspect pulled the hammer away from Mr. Pelosi and violently assaulted him with it. Our officers immediately tackled the suspect, disarmed him, took him into custody, requested emergency backup, and rendered medical aid. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now with the latest. Deirdre, what more can you tell us about what happened? Well, we first learned about this attack earlier this morning from Pelosi spokesman Drew Hamill. He put out a statement that there was this attack and an, uh, by an intruder against Paul Pelosi, who's 82 years old. San Francisco police say they were called to the house for a wellness check around 2.27 a.m. It's unclear who made that call. The man now in custody is 42-year-old David DePepe. According to a source briefed on the investigation, DePepe was specifically looking for the speaker and tells me that he confronted Paul Pelosi and asked, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? San Francisco Police Chief William Scott, who we heard from earlier, said DePepe is being charged with multiple crimes. Here's more. The motive for this attack is still being determined. Mr. DePepe will be booked at the San Francisco County Jail on the following charges. Attempted homicide, assault with a deadly weapon, elder abuse, burglary, and several other additional felonies. Pelosi's spokesman says Paul Pelosi underwent successful surgery to repair a skull fracture and serious injuries to his right arm and hands, and his doctors expect a full recovery. And what do we know about the background of the suspect here? 
As we heard from the chief, they're still investigating the motive. They often look to social media postings in these types of cases. NPR has reviewed social media accounts from a man with the same name as DePape, and they include anti-Semitic tropes and also false claims about the 2020 election and the COVID vaccine. But right now, we just don't have much official information from law enforcement about any specific links to Pelosi. Doesn't the Speaker of the House typically have security dedicated to themselves as well as their family? Right. You know this, Juana. You saw this on the Mm -hmm. Hill. All the top leaders from both parties have security details assigned by the Capitol Police. The Speaker was in Washington with her security team when the attack happened. And so her detail was with her, not at her home in San Francisco. Her spokesman said she's grateful to the first responders and requests privacy. And we do know that the FBI, the U.S. Capitol Police and San Francisco Police have announced a joint threat threat investigation. So we're waiting to hear more from them. What more do we know about threats against leaders and members of Congress just more generally? They've really gone up dramatically in recent years against lawmakers from both parties. Five years ago, the U.S. Capitol Police recorded a little less than 4,000 threats that year. Just one year ago, 2021, the last full year where we have statistics, there were close to 10,000. Last year, the U.S. Capitol Police opened up two field offices, one in Florida and one in California, because of heightened threats against lawmakers. And this year, money was added to lawmakers' budgets to allow them to upgrade security at their houses and their offices. We've seen attacks against other members. Uh, New York Republican Lee Zeldin, who's running for governor in New York, was recently attacked by a man wielding a knife. We know there was an attack on the Republicans practicing for a baseball team, including the number two House Republican Steve Scalise in 2017. You know, lawmakers are pretty Taken up today and uh, both expressing uh, sympathy for Mr. Pelosi. That's NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thank you for your reporting on this. Thank you. About half a billion people all around the world depend on ecosystems created by corals. Those plant-like marine animals that cover ocean floors are critical to fishing and tourism industries. And also... Coral reefs are the best living barrier against the destructive power of storms. So coastal communities in in developing countries depend on coral reefs for their survival, their livelihoods, and their food security. That is marine ecologist Enrique Sala, who recently talked me through a deep-sea mystery and miracle. It started in 2009. He led an expedition with National Geographic to a nearly untouched corner of the South Pacific. We wanted to get into a time machine, go back hundreds of years, and actually see a coral reef like they used to be everywhere before we started exploiting them and polluting them and killing them all over the world. His team wanted to see if the vibrant reefs there held any clues that could help them understand how to bring damaged reefs in other parts of the ocean back to health. And as soon as our bubbles cleared, the bottom was covered by a thriving coral. It was like crystal clear, blue turquoise water, schools of silver jacks, and then the corals, pastels, oranges and beiges. It was so beautiful. It was like an impressionist painting. Sala's team presented their findings to officials in the island country of Kiribati, also known as Kiribati. The Kiribati government took steps to protect the waters from fishing and other human activity. But between 2015 and 2016, record levels of ocean warming decimated half the coral reefs that Sala's team had been studying. We thought 
that all hope was lost, that even the most pristine coral reefs in the world were going to be destroyed with uh, warming that is increasingly more, more frequent. But they continued their study and last year set out for another dive. Sala told me he was dreading what he might find. While my buddies were getting their scuba tanks in, I just jumped in the water. And my uh, two divers... Uh, <laughs> no gear. With just my wetsuit. And I jumped in the water and I looked down and my first thought is, did anything ever happen to this reef? Salah and his team were ecstatic to see the reef restored. They recorded their reactions during that expedition. That was incredible. Well, the reef grows fast here. Why were things able to turn around so dramatically in just a few short years? We believe because of two reasons. One, half of the corals didn't die. So there were enough corals there to help to replenish the space that was left by the corals that died. And the second main reason is because the place is fully protected and it has an abundance of fish that is off the charts. So they were eating all the algae that would smother the dead coral skeletons and make it impossible for the corals to come back, which is what happens in other places like the Caribbean, for example, Ah. where the big fish are gone. Right. So by officially protecting the coral reef, it allowed all these fish to survive and they helped resuscitate the reef. Exactly. It is the protection that yields resilience. But the fish have to have these huge abundances that can only be achieved in an area that is either fully protected or that has never been fished. And there are very few of these left. But let me ask you, is this official protection of a coral reef scalable? Because realistically, no government is going to totally stop fishing, totally stop commercial activity. I mean, there are entire economies that rely on ocean industries. So how do you suggest striking a balance between protecting parts of the ocean and protecting people's livelihoods? Well, the funny thing is that today there is no balance that overfishing dominates the ocean. Because today, less than 3% of the ocean is fully protected from fishing. We also know these highly protected areas, the fish grow so much that many of those fish spill over the boundaries of these protected areas and help to replenish the surrounding fishing grounds. And we have seen in many places around the world that the fishermen are catching more fish around these protected areas than before. And also, the more marine life that is in the ocean, the higher the ability of the ocean to capture and store carbon pollution and help to mitigate climate change. So if countries want a future for their fisheries, they need to manage their fisheries in a more responsible way around areas that are set aside to help regenerate the rest of the ocean. Do you believe that the coral reef rebirth that you saw in Kiribati can actually convince other governments to protect their oceans the way you describe. I hope that what we saw in Kiribati is going to be a beacon of hope because all the news that we get about coral reefs are bad news, bleaching, death. We're going to lose 90% of the corals, even if we achieve the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. So in this sea of bad news, it's great to have an island of hope. It's great to show that protection of biodiversity, protection of marine life, can actually provide resilience to global warming. Enrique Sala, founder of National Geographic's Pristine Seeds Project. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me.
Hey, Juana, are you a fan of abstract art? I mean, it's nice, but I got to be honest, I sometimes find it disorienting. Like, what am I actually looking at here? I know. I feel like everyone pretends to find something profound in it, but a lot of people, even so-called experts, find it disorienting. What do you mean? Well, it turns out an artwork by Piet Mondrian has been displayed upside down for more than 75 years. Okay, I'm an amateur, so that is something I would do, but how did that happen? (laughs) Well, you can't totally blame them. You see, like, the artwork is a bunch of perpendicular strips of adhesive of tape in red, blue, and yellow. It's like a colorful grid. So that doesn't sound like it has an obvious top or bottom to it. So how did they figure out that the top was the bottom? (laughs) Zuzane Mayabuza noticed the mistake. She's an art curator in Dusseldorf, Germany. And she talked to Reuters about the work. She says that based on the way these colorful strips of tape were applied to the canvas, Mondrian must have worked on this the other way around. And therefore, the art is actually hanging upside down. Es hängt hier verkehrt down. Wow, that is some incredible detective work. So I know. Are they going to flip it around? Well, actually, no, because the curator says gravity could actually damage these delicate tape strips. All right, well, I guess we're just all going to have to flip ourselves over and do handstands in front of this painting to check it out. <laughs> You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, California is now a sanctuary for transgender youth who come for medical care. A new law protects families traveling from places where there are efforts to criminalize gender-affirming care. That story and more coming up. It's 618. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CIC Innovation Campus. Committed to reimagining the office for the needs of today's workforce. Flexible office space tours available at CIC.com slash enterprise. It was a big end to the week on Wall Street today. The Dow notched its fourth straight week of gains as it rose more than 2.5 percent, 829 points. It finished at 32,862. S&P gained just under 2.5 percent to end the day at 3,901. The Nasdaq jumped almost 3 percent to end the session at 11,102. Details coming up on Marketplace. It starts at 6.30. Funding for WBUR's Business Report comes from Boston University Academy, where high school students pursue their passions as far as they can take them. Virtual open house November 30th. Be curious, be kind, be you at BUA. Online at buacademy.org. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. In sports, it's a Massachusetts versus Ohio night tonight. Cleveland Cavaliers will be at the Garden to play the Celts. The Bruins are out in Columbus to take on the Blue Jackets. And in the forecast, chilly this evening and dry. And then overnight tonight, generally cloudy all the way down to the 30s tonight. Tomorrow and Sunday should be a lot alike. Sunny skies both days, light winds, high temperatures around 60 tomorrow, a few degrees higher on Sunday. This is 90.9 WBUR, 48 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. 
Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. A new California law protects families who travel to this state seeking medical care for transgender youth. It's a response to growing efforts in red states against trans rights. Leslie McClurg from member station KQED has more. After decades of building a life in Texas, a mother suddenly worried she might be investigated for child abuse. We were stunned that it was no longer safe for us to be there. She requested we not use her name because earlier this year, Texas Governor Greg Abbott ordered Family Protective Services to investigate parents with transgender kids. The mother started hearing stories about children who were pulled out of classrooms and interrogated. With their parents not being there, and these are children that have only socially transitioned. All they asked for was to be called a different pronoun. That's terrifying. Her own 12-year-old daughter socially transitioned three years ago when she asked her family and friends to use feminine pronouns. And so we sat down and talked to our kid. We gave her a little card to go to school with that listed her rights and told her what to do if somebody came to investigate us. But the family could not relax. They sold their home, and this fall they packed up all their belongings and moved to Southern California. It feels very good to not feel like you're in danger, you know, on that really critical place of, like, our family being ripped apart. They feel safe under a new law authored by State Senator Scott Weiner. It ensures families can access hormones or puberty blockers in California, and it shields families from investigations in other states. We are going to provide them with refuge, and we're not going to send them back, and we're not going to honor subpoenas, and our law enforcement is not going to enforce Uh, the laws of Texas and Alabama criminalizing these families. Leaders in 21 states are pushing laws that would restrict medical care for transgender youth. Many of these efforts are tied up in court. Nevertheless, families are panicking because kids who are already on hormones or puberty blockers may lose access to their medication. We want these treatments to not be happening on minors because they're permanent. Greg Burt is with the conservative Christian California Family Council. He worries kids will regret transitioning. We do not assume that your body is the problem. We think it's much more logical to encourage young people to try and get their minds to match their bodies. Yet the standard of care for kids who are really distressed and diagnosed with gender dysphoria does include medical interventions. But it's not just the content of the new California law that Burt opposes. He also argues that it violates the Constitution. There could be litigation, both with respect to abortion and with respect to gender-affirming care. Jessica Levinson is a professor at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. But I think the weight of the law indicates that states are separate sovereigns if and until there is a national standard that indicates nobody can obtain gender-affirming care or nobody can obtain an abortion, the law allows for that patchwork. That patchwork is crucial to Kathy Molig's work. She is the executive director of Trans Family Support Services in San Diego. The politicians should not be making medical decisions for anybody, nor should they be making parental decisions for anybody. A survey from the Trevor Project, a suicide prevention organization, found that 45% of transgender youth have considered killing themselves in the last year. About a decade ago, Molig helped her 11-year-old access puberty blockers. My son would not still be alive if we waited to 18. 
He already was in so much distress and so completely miserable. His body was becoming something that he knew he was not. Today, she says her son is thriving in college, studying theology. Yet there's little to no data on whether youth who transition regret that decision later. For the Molig family, their only regret is waiting as long as they did. For NPR News, I'm Leslie McClurg. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The next governor of Massachusetts will have to grapple with the ever-rising cost of health care. The COVID pandemic is lingering, inflation is driving up costs, and staffing shortages are threatening access to care. Polls show that the Democrat in the race, Maura Healey, has a lead over Republican Jeff Deal. WBR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey looks at how Healy's work as state attorney general could shape her approach to health care if she becomes governor. Healy says as governor, she'd push for stronger oversight of the healthcare industry. And she touts her experience negotiating hospital mergers and suing companies that rip off consumers. I've spent a lot of time on healthcare um, over the last eight years. And certainly there are any number of challenges. One is affordability. We don't have accessibility if we don't have affordable health care. Healy targeted health care costs from her first days as attorney general. She helped to slow the expansion of the state's biggest hospital system, Mass General Brigham. And she required the Beth Israel and Leahy hospitals to cap prices in order to merge. She also got the state's biggest insurers to remove barriers to mental health treatment. Healy made a recent campaign stop at UMass Boston, where she watched nursing students practice reviving a patient, in this case, a mannequin. Healy says as governor, she would invest in training programs like this to help hospitals that are scrambling to find enough workers. And she told reporters at the event her administration would tackle health disparities and invest in mental health care. We need to do the, the work as a state to increase those resources to get more people into these fields uh, and more people who can be out there helping residents across the state. But it's, it's an incredibly important issue. Healy's Republican opponent, Jeff Deal, agrees Massachusetts needs to expand mental health treatment and grow the health care workforce. But Deal puts vaccination mandates at the center of his campaign. He says he opposes them and would hire back any state workers who lost their jobs for failing to get a COVID vaccine. Here he is in the last debate. They need. You should get health care freedom. You should have the choice with your lives to get the health care that you decide, not government forcing it on you. And Deal also favors giving people more choice when it comes to insurance plans and hospitals. He took this swipe at Healy's health care record. But again, when you have uh, hospital mergers that have been approved by your office that have created less competition, of course health care is going to go up. That's a huge problem for Massachusetts. We need more competition in the health care marketplace. Unfortunately, you've taken action that actually makes that more expensive. Healy rejects that charge. But the next governor will face challenges when it comes to health care. The state's top job comes with tough responsibilities, for example, running the state Medicaid program and shaping policy through legislation. And there may be more pressure to play it safe. Healthcare is a powerful industry in Massachusetts. It accounts for a lot of campaign donations to candidates, says John McDonough, a professor at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, who has donated to Healy's campaign. So it makes them somewhat cautious in terms of going out on a ledge and sort of picking fights. 
Healy often praises the outgoing Republican governor, Charlie Baker, and hints that she'd follow his lead on health care. McDonough says that's a likely scenario. I don't have any sign or indication that I can point to that the attorney general would deviate substantially from even the Baker administration. Healy won the Democratic primary without a challenge. She isn't offering a lot of detail about how she would tackle some big issues, including the cost of health care. But she's asking voters to trust her record. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. This is WBUR. In the forecast, a chilly breeze is blowing right now. It's 48 degrees in the Boston area. Should be down in the mid-30s overnight tonight with lots of clouds around. Mighty fine weekend ahead, though. Sunny tomorrow, about 60 for a high. Then Sunday, pretty much the same thing. Sunny skies could be around 63 degrees. We may see some clouds return, though, on Monday. This will be another weekend when you cannot drive through the Sumner Tunnel. The ongoing renovation project is closing the Sumner from 11 tonight until early Monday morning. Tunnel closures on weekends will continue until next May, excluding some holiday weekends. This is WBUR. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Chestnut Hill School, leading the way in elementary education since 1860. Grow today, transform tomorrow. On the web at tchs.org.